0: Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Assayasin. On today's three questioned episode is Bob Coughlin. Bob was formerly the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council and is presently managing director of Jones Lang LaSalle's life science practice. The rule in the three questions episode is simple. The role of the interviewer will flip halfway through the show. This conversation was recorded in the fall of 2020. It was one of the last interviews Bob
0: did in his past role at MassBio.
1: Bob, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Oh, thanks for having me Gunner. this is great. Thank you so much.
1: So uh, my first question for you, Bob is what is MassBio and why is it essential to the biotech industry in Massachusetts?
0: You know, MassBio was the first biotech trade association founded in the world, Gunner. It was founded in 1985, and it was so the six charter member companies could get together and really educate. Back in 1985, biotech was a new word, word, right? And it was a new industry. So they needed to teach politicians and both on the city and state level as to what the definition of genetic engineering was, which really became biotechnology. So they did that so that they could have a policy effort and also put together a big group purchasing consortium As we've evolved to today, uh, as of now, we have 1,400 member companies. So we've gone from six companies all the way to, to, to 1,400 member companies, and we've become the best place in the world for the life sciences. And it's really the mission is to ensure that academia, industry, and government work together so that we can have the best environment so really smart people can do amazing work and help patients.
1: You know when you think of the biotech industry, Boston and Massachusetts really is like the first thing that comes to mind. you know it's it's it, the innovative life sciences that exist throughout the Bay State are just amazing. and I, I spent four years of college at college at BC in Boston and I remember you know mid 2000, you know early 2010s when I was in school, it just felt like it was exploding. The number of companies that were just yeah. coming coming across and coming online, you know, what has that been like to, to watch? And, and my my second question for you here is, you know, the the farm industry is really in the middle of a pivotal time with the whole COVID crisis and a number of companies responding to to the pandemic are based in the Bay state. Do you think this is a make or break moment for the industry and its reputation?
0: Yeah, Gunnar, I really do. I mean, it is a make or break opportunity in a sense, and I'll get back to that. But to, to talk about the, uh, how this happened here in Massachusetts, this ecosystem. I started here at MassBio on September 1st, 2007. You know, I'm a recovering politician, don't hold it against me, but while serving in office, as you know, having a son with cystic fibrosis, I was always trying to pass laws that could make Massachusetts a better place so that companies like Vertex and Genzyme and Millennium could do great things for sick people, okay? So what happened between 07 into 2012, well, the world crashed. As you recall, while well, you were uh, an eagle over at Boston College, Wall Street crashed. And from 07 to 2012, we didn't have an IPO market, but because government stepped up here in Massachusetts, created a 10-year, $1 billion life science initiative, and government raised their hand, and they said to pharma companies and biotech companies, device companies, everybody in the life sciences field, they said, we're open for business. We want you here. We have 122 colleges and universities. We have five of the top six NIH-funded hospitals, and we have the world-class talent to do what it is that you needed to do. So when Wall Street went away, we saw that as an opportunity to get on the road. And we've recruited 18 of the top 20 big pharma companies to come here. That wasn't the case in the early to mid 2000s. And now they are here. So we have research, we have development, we have manufacturing of large molecule drugs, and we're leading the way in in cell and gene therapy. So all of this amazing stuff happened. And then in 20 2012, Wall Street came back, the IPO market came back strong, the VC investment came back strong. We continued to grow from 2012 all the way through to 2019, and then boom, COVID hits us, a pandemic. If you and I were talking a year ago, I never would have thought this could have happened. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean that we've slowed down, Gunner. It means that we've doubled down and we've picked it up because when you're the best place in the world for research and development, and when the most important thing in the world To the world's economy into people feeling safe again becomes a vaccine? Well, that's what we do. And you know, we over 90 companies right now in Massachusetts are working on COVID-19 related research, whether it's diagnostics, therapeutics, or vaccines, we're fighting way above our weight. And I think it's changing how we do business. And we should probably talk a little bit about that, Gunner, because this is an opportunity for us to improve the image of the industry. Pre COVID, people thought drugs were too expensive. You and I know that isn't the case. Drugs are valuable, and they bring value to the healthcare system, and they create life and 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 create tomorrows and quality of life. So that, that's very important. But now everybody in the world knows what it feels like to be waiting in, uh, with an unmet medical need. You've been waiting your whole life for that next great cystic fibrosis drug so you can stay alive. Now people realize that the only way they're going to get back to normal is if we have a vaccine. So I hope and I and I preach and I meet with all of these life science companies to make sure that we do this right and we get it right so that this vaccine when it's uh when the vaccines are available we do but bo- bo- right by society we price it right we distribute it right we got to get it right so that we can have a better reputation coming through all this
1: you know I I, I want to stick on that I know this isn't part of my three questions but the impressive speed with which the industry is responding to this crisis is, is really amazing. What other unmet medical needs are out there that need to have that sort of just cataclysmic response as well? You know, the thing that comes to my mind, and we were talking about this, you know, before we, we turn on the recording, is, you know, the antimicrobial resistance crisis that is sort of permeating through the healthcare industry. You
0: got to think about this, right? We, we have up... Op- These companies, right? I've never seen the level of collaboration, communication, teamwork. We have every major company and and new companies fighting day and night to come up with some sort of a solution to this problem that we're in right now. The government steps up with Operation Warp Speed. The quickest a vaccine has ever been invented in the past was four years. We're going to have several of them in less than a year. Okay, the public needs to know how amazing this is. Science has advanced so much. Cooperation has advanced so much. Collaboration has advanced so much. So now we can't help but say, you asked the perfect question there, Gunnar, because imagine if they had Operation Warp Speed for CF. You know, my son was born 18 years ago. I wish they did 18 years ago, so it wouldn't take so long and cost so much money to come up with these breakthrough therapies like Vertex has. But when you look at uh, antibiotics, infection, right why aren't we doing more there's a huge unmet medical need there at huge societal costs like the government should be doubling down on on antibiotics and 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 also let's look at alzheimer's right what does alzheimer's cost our society right if you could come up with a therapy that staves off the symptoms of alzheimer's just five years you could solve the national debt crisis right Mm because government ends up paying for it anyway Right. People are crazy. Right. We have a sick care system. We got to turn it into a health care system with therapies that reward people being well and staying out of the hospital and keep them living and working is good for the economy. But we don't we have a system that was designed, uh, a sick care system that was designed in the 50s. and, And now we have state of the art breakthrough science that's advanced so much quicker than our payer system.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, I, when looking at the overall expenditures in the healthcare system, we know that most of those expenditures come in the last five years of life. You know, making sure those those time that time period is either pushed back or uh, erased is just is is really a goal to shoot for. We'll be right back with Bob Coughlin. I want to talk to you a little bit about CF. You are a CF dad above all else. What does yeah. biopharma success mean for you and your family?
0: You know, hey, Gunner, look, it it's no mystery. Uh, I am very fortunate. I have the best job in biotech, in the best place in the world for biotech. And, you know, I don't want to get too personal here, but there's a good chance I might've failed biology at Dedham High School uh, back in the <laughs> late 80s, okay? And, you know, I'm a recovering politician that went to a merchant marine academy, right? I don't belong here in biotech. The reason I ended up in this industry is because for the last 18 years, you know, like your family, And like your dad and your mom and your sister, people that I'm so grateful to have in my life, all we have done in your leadership, Gunner, we have worked so hard each and every day to create an environment so that these really smart people have the opportunity to solve unmet medical need. Not just, for us, it was cystic fibrosis, but this goes for every known unmet medical need known to humankind, right? Think of what's going on in you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, ALS, Uh, Parkinson's disease, this is all so important. So when you think about what biopharma success means to me and my family, hey, in Massachusetts, I say all the time, it's great that we can drive the economy with all these amazing jobs that are created in the life sciences industry, but come on, let's think of what we're doing for humankind. Every single person who walks on the earth at one point or another is a patient and needs care this industry, these amazing people go to work every day to solve unmet medical need for people that in most cases they don't even know and they're true heroes. So, you know, what does it mean to me? It means that I can sleep at night without having to have a nightmare about going to my son's funeral. And, you know, think of any parent out there listening, think of the burden and the anxiety and how horrible that is. And, And we all know and love somebody who has either died from an unmet medical need or is currently fighting cancer or some of these more uh, prominent diseases. But, you know, what it means to me is this industry gets up every day and they keep people alive and they improve the quality of lives of humans. And there's nothing more noble than that.
1: You know, Bob, I think what you just talked about right there is like the ultimate stakeholder, you know, position, right? Your family has an amazing point in this industry that, you know, Right. Every single person at some point in their lives is going to be a patient. But guess what? We have patients right now that do have unmet medical needs. And you, what your your work and leadership has done is really proven that there is value in having those stakeholders inside the life sciences industry to the point where you know the motivation to, to deliver cures is 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 far greatest when it's personal. And for your family and my family too, it's a personal mission.
0: Yeah. And, and to have one of the things that I've seen, and when we get ready to flip questions back, I can't wait to ask you my three questions. But uh when when you look at what we've done so much better as an industry, and I've been an advocate for it for a long time is the whole patient advocacy piece. When you look at 21st century cures and how we're incorporating the voice of the patient, patients should be involved with clinical trials and in, in, in helping define, you know, outcomes like in 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 what we're looking to get from these therapies when you incorporate the patient into the story one we help educate the public and you as an industry we're doing better the patient should have a voice at the table
1: we'll be right back with bob coughlin so you you brought it up we're going to flip the the microphone around here you're going to become the interviewer and uh, and stick me with a couple questions
0: Let's start with clinical trials. I know how many clinical trials my little guy was in until he, unfortunately, he has end stage liver disease. So he's been out. He's been out of clinical trials for a long time now. How do you think we can make, as an industry, how can we make clinical trials more accessible for patients?
1: So I'm glad you asked. I, over the summer, I wrote an opinion piece in Newsweek where I talked about making clinical trials more accessible, and I think the COVID pandemic is really going to give us an opportunity. You know, we're talking about opportunities through crisis. You know, you spoke about that with the life sciences industry, but. I think what we're going to learn here is that you know we need external validity with our data, with what the life sciences industry is working on, the innovation that we're we're coming up with, um, and I think one of those things is you know, moving clinical trials into inside the home, you know, I think having using home reported outcomes, using remote monitoring technologies, all of that is important. And I think that's how you're going to get more folks inside these clinical trials. You know, I was speaking with a physician on a project that I'm working on uh, a few weeks ago, and, and she said, you know, Inside my clinic, I have about 10 or 15 percent of patients that I know that I can lean on for clinical trials. I want that number to grow. The problem is, you know, these folks they can't get off work so frequently. They can't get to the clinic so frequently, maybe because they live so far away. But we know these folks are are important data points for our clinical trials as well. You know, we need these folks inside our clinical trials so that we know Mm. that whatever we're working on, whatever we're studying can actually be validated across a broader population. And I think that's important for minority populations, for populations with you know different health conditions, for people in different socioeconomic statuses. You know, I think this is an important thing that I want the life sciences industry to really evaluate moving forward uh, now that we have the technology and also this giant shove to push us in this direction.
0: Yeah, those are all great points. Message received, and you can rest assured, Gunnar, that I will bring that message back to our 1,400 member companies that are doing this sort of work. You talked about data accumulated during the trials and everything. Should the patients have access to that data?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think, Bob, I think they should. I think, you know, I've been in a number of clinical trials. Obviously, your son's been in clinical trials as well. You know, those visits to the clinics are important clinics, you know, and, and clinic visits. And I, I think that we're in this world where we're talking about who does data belong to? Does it belong to the companies that are you know working with us? Does it belong to the government? Does it belong to the patients? I think uh, ultimately, first and foremost, a patient is the one that is giving his time, effort, and resources into participating in clinical trials. And whether or not a drug works, or whatever is being studied works or does not work, is an important data point for the physician to know, for the company to know, for the sponsor to know, and for the patient to know. You know, you may be uncovering different trends that a patient may not otherwise have access to. And I think at the end of the day, when patients do volunteer for clinical trials, the most important compensation that can be given is an evaluation of that person's health. And I think, you know, we're we're talking, we talked about it at business school, how how health is everyone's business. And we talked about it before on this podcast, where every single person is going to be a patient at one point in their life. And that, that to me feels like it's such a, 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 a no nonsense, no brainer question that who does data belong to? It has to belong to patients
0: in the end. Yeah, two. So that's my two questions. I want I have an extra one. So I'm going to do number three and three and a half at the same time. All right, let's do it. How can people like you and my son, um, you know, stay involved with drug discovery after clinical trials, Bobby's not probably going to be in a clinical trial ever again. But he's still a, a very active member of the community. Uh, what are some of the things that? What would? It and then after that, my my third and a half question would be like, you're such a role model to so many in the CF community, and I can't thank you enough. For your leadership, and you're, you're a hero to me, and, and your whole family is. And what your dad has done, and your your whole family has done, is truly remarkable. So we can't thank you enough. You know, how do you? How would you stay involved after clinical trials? And what advice would you have to my son, who's an 18 year old young man, just trying to live his life?
1: So, I appreciate the kind words. It's really, really, really super kind. Um, You know, we're all in it together. I I think to answer your your first question about, you know, keeping patients involved in the industry and stakeholders involved in the industry, you know, I think we got to look at, you know, look at yourself in the mirror here. You know, you're Mm -hmm. the ultimate stakeholder family, just like we had been talking about. Um, But, you know, I I look back on one experience that I had where I was invited to participate in in an FDA externally led patient meeting on drug development, where we talked about the things that we need in the CF world. And I know these things go on for a number of different uh, diseases and, and chronic conditions, and they're all so important because I think what I want to know, what I want is I want drug developers to hear from patients what we need, right? And, you know, and I, in, in talking with uh, someone from another, from another, uh, con- you know, another patient from another condition, you know, they were talking about COPD and what those COPD patients really wanted was to cough less, right? You yeah. know, that seems like such a small thing in in the, in the grand terms of treating COPD or any sort of uh, obstructive pulmonary disorder. You know, I just want to cough less. I want my life, my quality of life to improve. And you know, who's going to hear that? Is that going to is that being relayed from the 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 patient's physician back to the drug developers, or are drug developers and researchers listening to patients in the here and now? You know, one of the things that I always hear, you know, just from the patient advocacy side, is that researchers are so far disconnected from patients. I want that connection to be strengthened. I want that bond to exist, and yeah. I want you know, patients to have an ability to tell their story to those people who are in those labs working and working and working and i mean you know as well as i do that working in a in a, in a life sciences lab is met with a lot of failure right i always feel like it's got to be the toughest job in the world to sure, you know, to, you know, sure to bet is. your entire career on one single success but that success is after you know tens and hundreds of failures so um, for me, I think the easy answer there is that you know patients need to be able to you know, converse with researchers, drug developers need to go, go to patients, see what they need, see what needs they still have, and how can they improve their lives, not only in the long term, but also in the short term as well. Um, and then my final, my final piece here is to, to give some advice to, to, to you know, young adults living with whatever chronic condition, of course, your son here. My biggest piece of advice is live in the here and now. Right. Every single experience that you have right now in your childhood is going to shape who you are later in life. Um, And whether or not that's you're dealing with critical illness or you're dealing with good health or improving health or worsening health, you know, those little experiences in the moment will show who you are later on, you know, and I'll, I'll relay a quick little story to you. When I was uh, 20 years old at BC, um, I, my weight was, was really failing. I was, my health was, in, you know, disarray. And I had a conversation with my care provider, at Boston children's hospital. And we were talking about, you know, inserting a feeding tube in, into my body. And yeah. it was something that I had uh, rejected the idea that I did not want. I had no desire to have it. And he was like, you know, Gunnar, I had a patient um, who whose goal was to run the Boston Marathon and in order to do that she needed some weight she okay. needed muscle mass and the only way she could do that was by you know inserting a feeding tube and he was able to meet me for who i was and you know i come from an athletic family you know he saw that i wanted to be an athlete that i was frustrated that i wasn't an athlete maybe if he told me this athletic story to be determined whether or not it's actually true but he you know he went on and on and on about yeah. <laughs> how his patient was able to build muscle mass and how she was able to finish the boston marathon and and met met, met, met the doctor at the finish line you know mm-hmm. a really awesome yeah. story and for me, I heard that and I, you know, immediately went from rejecting and neglecting my weight and, and and the idea of a feeding tube to accepting it as a tool to make myself and my health better. And I think that's Absolutely. what we all want. And, and and my my point of the story here is that, you know, that was a that was really living in the here and now. You know, I recognized that I needed a tool to make my life better. And I think that's something that I've taken with me uh, you know, to grad school and I'll hopefully take it to my career after after grad school as well.
0: Wow, you know, that's a beautiful story. And it is so true. When you think about, you know, wrapping up here on our end to think about sitting here with you right now. And I, I think about all that we've been and all that cystic fibrosis has thrown at our family in the last 18 years. I also can't help but think what a blessing it has been, because we have lived every day for the last 18 years, as if that day, we treat it with the importance that it deserved. Mm-hmm. And I think we've lived a much better life filled with purpose and passion and, and, and appreciation and gratitude. I don't think I had gratitude uh, before being part of the CF community, and I, I definitely didn't have it for a couple of years. Uh, when Bobby was a baby, when I had to get my head around this, but working with the cystic fibrosis community, the CF Foundation, and people like your dad and Joe O'Donnell, who have meant so much to me, uh, it's truly been amazing. So I can't, I can't thank you enough for having me on this today. Let's keep in touch. Uh, keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Keep the patient voice front and center because that's where it belongs. And I can assure you that, you know, what I do here in the life sciences and the companies that I work with, they're not going to have a choice but to listen to the patients because that's what we're all about. Well, I appreciate you Bob Coughlin. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: And uh, I will definitely, definitely keep that uh, that offer in check and keep you in the Rolodex. So thanks for coming on and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully bring you back on another time.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Connor. Take care.
1: That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17 Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnerEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Bob Coughlin and Mass Bio for help with today's interview. We wish Bob the best of luck with his new role at Jones Lang LaSalle's Life Science Practice. State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. See you next week.